at that time, um, at MediaWorks, we were still Magic Talk. Um, and so at that stage, I was rostered onto what we call our setup shift. Um, I, was, I was just a news reporter at the time. Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan, and this is Tom Day. Tom is a producer on Today FM's breakfast show, Tova. Um, and around our newsroom, we have all of these TV screens. And then on CNN, I just happened to see this, <laughs> this big banner with that infamous Vladimir Putin press conference where, where he effectively he talks about this special military operation in Ukraine, which if you code it down, we know that that meant war. And it just completely flipped on its head what we were doing and it just became this incredible breaking news scenario. And at the time, we really wanted to make sure that we were covering it because certainly this kind of war in the Western world is just so unheard of in, in our time and in the, in the 21st century. Earlier this month, the host of Tova, Tova O'Brien, travelled more than 40 hours to Ukraine to interview its leader, Volodymyr Zelensky. It's the first and so far only interview any New Zealand journalist has done with the Ukrainian president, whose country was invaded by Russian forces six months ago. The interview was the culmination of months of planning and persuasion, good timing and a healthy dose of good luck. As well as the 34-minute interview, O'Brien and her team have made a documentary in which she interviews everyday Ukrainians and New Zealanders and other volunteers about their experiences in this war-torn country. So today on The Detail... How Tova O'Brien got to Ukraine, what it was like to be in a country ravaged by war, how she prepared for an interview with one of the world's most famous men, and why Ukraine fatigue syndrome means it's even more important to keep this story in the headlines. So the very first time that I sat down with my team when we were when I came off restraint, um, we started plotting our dream lists of interviewees, people that we wanted to talk to, and he was first person on my list on day one. That's Tover O'Brien. This was the moment. This this was this was kind of everything that was consuming my attention at the time, and I could see the impacts already on New Zealand, and I was really struck by him as a leader as well. I, I think the life imitating art side of Zelensky, the this comedian come actor who played a president who then became a president, who then became a wartime president and the farce that perhaps people thought he was gonna be in the early stages and then seeing how this person performed in that context and how he led his people and how he embodied the Ukrainian resilience that we've all come to know so much about. Freedom Square, can you imagine this morning two cruise missiles hit this Freedom Square, dozens of killed ones. This is the price of freedom. We are fighting just for our land and for our freedom. That was someone I wanted to be in a room with. That was someone I wanted to speak to. I think in those early phases, I found that with the Ukrainian people is, is that they were very open to having conversations. 
Tom Day is O'Brien's producer who spent months trying to secure this interview. I was able to be like, hey, do you know so-and-so? They'd be like, sure, let me, let me help you out. Mm. Even on the day of, of, of the war, I was then able to get a Ukrainian politician on the show literally as she was running. She was running into the parliament because, because Putin had, had just declared. It was this incredible five seconds of audio. We are gathering to vote for the military state. Nobody knows if Putin will go further, but we need to know that we are ready. This is our goal. Uh, I'm very sorry. I'm already in the, the parliament and I have to go. Throughout my research, I then found this website called Ukraine Verified. Ukraine Verified is, is this page that was set up by this person. And she, what she'd done is that she correlated about 50 or so contacts of different people in prominent positions who were all English speaking to make them accessible to media. And at the, the time... I was just like, this is a gold mine. And so one of the people that I wanted to get on was the CEO of Nafto Gas, which is the biggest gas company. And, you know, I was just fascinated to be going, how do you have electricity in a war zone? And But he was unavailable on that day. And so they were, then were like, oh, we've got the advisor. And I was like, sure, he'll do. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah. And so his name was Alexei uh, Rybachin. And he was excellent. And so and, and we then ended up getting our, talking after he was on the show. And I was like, well, hey, you know, I see that you're a former minister for, for environment. So he must have worked in government. This is very cheekily being me. And I was like, so any any government contacts? If you don't ask, you, you don't, know, yeah. if, uh, and, and he was like, sure. And so he then gives me the, the, the contact of this guy called Yaroslav, who's the press secretary for the uh, deputy prime minister. And so I then called him and I was like, can she come on the show? And he was like, no, um, <laughs> um, she's busy. I was like, totally understand. He then literally sent me this splurge of just all, all of the big named government press secretaries. And so I then started making calls through. And so then subsequently, that was why then about a week and a half later, we then had the Ukraine foreign minister, uh, Dmitry Kuleva, on our show. Well, when you are fighting a war, you uh, expect others to do more and more for you because you pay the high, you make the highest sacrifice. We appreciate the New Zealand's decision. And uh, if uh, your government is capable of doing more, we will welcome their efforts. That was kind of the first start of really getting the ball rolling. And then after that, that was then when I reached out to uh, Serhi uh, Nikaifrov, who's the, the president's press secretary. So that was I first reached out on Monday, April 11th. Okay, that's when you first get in touch with the that, president's press secretary. That is the first, that is the first time I send a message. Hmm. It is almost initially like a one-sided relationship conversation. Yeah. Of the start, I am just sending and getting nothing. Yeah, you're, you're showing me at the moment the text that you sent to the pre- president's press secretary, and there are what seven or eight texts in a row that you've sent that are unanswered, which, <laughs> there's, is, there's, which there's, is discouraging. But you know, I was getting to the point of going at that stage. I was like, oh, you know, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And then, and then one moment I see that he, I can see, because you know on WhatsApp, you can see when someone's typing. It's like yeah. the great array of suspense. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and then the first message, he says, Hi, Tom, I agree with you. Uh, it's the right thing to do for us to speak directly to every country that supports us. But Mr. President's time is very limited, and so we cannot physically respond to all requests. And I, I said in my op-ed, I said, normally this is the point where, where, where journalists just end up being defeated. But there, there was something in that message where, where I was going, I still think that there's a door opening. And I proceeded to call him about two weeks later. 
I made a habit of calling him every every three days. And so I then called him and he didn't pick up. I called him again, didn't pick up. And then eventually there was one night where he did pick up. And I was like, he must have picked up by accident. <laughs> it was it was that surreal. Um, and then we just had an incredibly positive conversation at that time. But he very much said the line of, you know, if the president wants to speak to New Zealand, he'll speak to New Zealand. So then it kind of ended up getting to the back end of May. And so I then do another call. And I was aware also by this time that, that 60 Minutes Australia had done this interview. Tonight, he wants to speak to Australia. And he's invited us into his inner sanctum to explain the horror show that is this ongoing war. And so I was aware that they had a door opening somewhere. And so then when I called Sehi back, um, he kind of reiterated the same message. And I then said, well, just blatantly out, why why, why did he decide to speak to Australia? And and he said, because it was the ambassador. Mm. So I then reached out to what was then the ambassador of Australia at that time. Um, And so then we started having conversations. I could probably say that leading up to the interview, there were about three times where we got very close and it didn't happen. Really? And it was quite funny because I had the yes from him, be it about a week prior, but he hadn't put it on in writing for me. And so I then couldn't give it to the rest of the team. Um, because For a, a week? Yeah, it was July, July the 26th. It was, it was just very short. He just says, he just says, I've got confirmation that NZ has confirmed. They just need to suggest the date. Wow. Um, and that's when I knew that we had it. How did it? Go. When did you fly out? Where did you fly into? How did everything kind of proceed? I understand it was a bit of a whirlwind. <laughs> yeah, the logistical kind of... questions are hard for me at the moment because, uh, yeah, well, uh, I think it was maybe about a 40, 50 hour trek over there. Flew out of Auckland into Kuala Lumpur, then to Dubai, then to Poland. Then from Poland, we met our security team, jumped in a van drove from Warsaw to Kiev through the night. What do you remember about that drive? On the way through, I was uh, really struck when we first got to the border. That's probably when everything feels hyper-real because it's the first time you're seeing something. You know, it's like travelling anywhere. It feels hyper-real in those first moments before anything becomes familiar and travelling through the border. Ukraine's beauty belies its hurt travelling south from Kiev towards the front line, at first marvelling at the sunflower fields stretching forever before recognising the global sunflower oil shortage because the wars prevented their harvest. I probably read into everything, looking at everyone. I read, you know, read into um, probably feelings more than people were feeling or moments more than they were actually happening, if that makes sense. But you get, I was really struck by the columns and columns and trucks going for kilometres and kilometres and kilometres out the other side of the border. And that was probably the first manifestation of the war, was seeing the fact that people just can't get out of the country. And then you start seeing the, the checkpoints checkered down the, the road to Kiev. And that was that's when it also kind of dawns on you. Shooting all the time and sometimes windows are crashed, sometimes you can find a dead body just near the building in the central city. Uh, old people suffering much because they do not have resources. Were there any kind of like wow moments where you were like, shit, I really am in a country that's at war? 
Always. Yeah, I think there were just, it was a constant stream of wow moments and it wasn't necessarily with the symbols or monuments of war, it was also with the um, sense of normality in some places that's also just as striking when you know that 500 kilometres to the east or the south people are dying, yeah. civilians are dying every, every single day. So I think, yeah, I was constantly struck the whole time and talking to people as well, constantly struck, You're talking to people in Mekulive um, down on the, the front line in the south who live in this town and they're terrorised every single night. The artillery starts at midnight, 1am, goes through until 5am, the air sirens just continue to wail but they refuse to leave their town. You know, you talk, any, anybody you talk to, you're, you're struck by the realities of what's going on. A young woman called Chris doing shots outside a bar, got yarning to her, her father had just been killed two and a half months earlier in Mariupol. He is died in a Russian attack. Yeah. War Russian terrorist. The crazy shit. You know, everyone is feeling profoundly the effects of the war, whether they're directly impacted or or not. And so I think, yeah, you're constantly struck um, that this is a country at war. What did you pack? That's a good question. I packed a lot of jeans, packed some boots, packed one frock for the interview, one pair of heels, and I'm not. It felt weird yeah. doing that as well. You know, you f- you feel like you're you're going into a place, you're going into a conflict zone. You don't want to be putting a pair of, you know, court pumps into your bag. Felt strange. And even thinking about packing, you know, you don't want anything that feels. You know, slightly superficial thinking yeah. about clothes and toiletries and stuff when you're going into a place where you know people have been robbed of everything. February the 24th is the day Russia invaded Ukraine. Is this on the front lines? For Anna Zaychenko, it's also the day her mother died of a heart attack. On the first day my mother passed away. I'm sorry. <laughs> A week later, her grandmother died. Then, in a cruel trifecta of trauma, her brother George was killed on the front line by Russian forces. He was the type of guy that you meet and think he's like, you know, the best mate ever. What did you want to get out of the interview? How did you approach it? I wanted to touch on everything that we had been covering on our program since day one um, and so for me that was it was important to the reason the president wanted to talk to us because that's another question is like why is he talking to New Zealand um, and that's because international support international eyeballs what we were talking he about before to talk to fatigue everybody, right? yeah. he wants yeah he's got a he, his job right now yes wartime president leading a country but it's also a kind of promotional role like he needs to be getting into the the television sets and the and the wireless and the newspapers of of every single country to try and get that help and support for Ukraine and I think New Zealand has a, a fundamental role to play there New Zealand has only provided $7.5 million in lethal military support. What can we buy with $7.5 million New Zealand dollars? Well, uh, one artillery shell could cost something like uh, 1,500 US dollars. That's 1.5 thousand US dollars. One. So I said that it can be about uh, 3,000, something like that, Mm -hmm. 3,000 shells. So it's, it's not a lot. It's not even a day of the war.
And also semantic support, things like calling Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Putin a war criminal. Is that is that important? The Ukraine special visa is something that we've been driving really hard, talking to New Zealand-based Ukrainians who haven't been able to get their families here, who are terrified that they're going to die, but because the criteria is so restrictive, they can't get here. So that's that's where we wanted to go. And I also... I. You know, read so much about the man, watch so many of his interviews, listen to so many of his interviews. I kind of, I wanted to get a sense of what it was like for him as well and for his family because I cannot imagine what it would be like to be a father knowing that your children are, in your, from your perspective, the number two kill targets of a superpower. That's terrifying and, yeah. and what that does to his psychology. I would say that they grew older, mature, so to say, like young children, but becoming older in terms of their experience. One of the things, and you wrote an editorial about this, is the idea of Ukraine fatigue and the question of whether people are still interested in this. Is this really the right thing to do, given all of the expense involved and given the inconvenience involved in getting to Ukraine? For me, that's even more reason to go. That's even more reason to sit down with him and talk to him about his fears about fatigue of, of this war. Even more reason to talk to the Ukrainian based New Zealand the New Zealand based Ukrainians who are still trying to get their families here. Even more reason to talk about the diplomatic, humanitarian, military contributions that New Zealand can be making to this war because it's still being fought mm-hmm. and there are still Kiwis fighting there as well. So no. The fatigue is a reason to go and to see what's happening and to speak to the president even more so. Can you describe how you met him? We went through the checkpoints to get into the presidential offices and this is when it started becoming a reality but you know even until that point he walked in the room we were worried that it could still fall over you know it's such as war anything could happen at any time and it would be and it would be all over but you we were led through it could have been our parliament a slightly more opulent version of our parliament, you know, similar almost fleur de carpet, high ceilings, gold gilded this and that, tapestries on the wall, but pitch black and sandbags on the windows and just emergency lights and, you know, little old orange lamp like my nana had and plugged in on the floor guiding you through to this enormously opulent room which was... Uh, which bridged the military council, which is a really kind of quite profound space because it's where they determined martial law in Ukraine. So yeah. in that room is where they decided that men could not leave the country. You, you know, and those moments are not lost on you in these mm. in these spaces. And he was late, <laughs> and so we waited in this room, uh, pacing for um, for a long time. Simon Morrow, our head of uh, video production here at Today FM, who was um, who I was travelling with. He was setting up an enormous four-camera shoot, just um, him really, and a uh, a freelancer that we uh, were working with in Ukraine. So we were just kind of, we just didn't want to f*** it up. You know, it's like, is the microphone on? Is the thing rolling? Are the questions, just getting the the basics right. But yeah, because he was a bit bit late, because he had, you know, he's running a country at war. Um, Were you nervous? I was, until he walked in the room. But I'd also, I'd done everything I could do to that point. As um, Simon Morrow said, you know, the moment he walked into the room, that's when we both were kind of put at ease and that's when we relaxed because he was so personable and warm um, and there was, a, there was a hospitality there and, uh, and then we just, we just talked hmm. and it felt, it didn't, it didn't feel like 
some of the other interviews in my life which have been incredibly nerve-wracking you know mm. it was um it was a conversation he's short i'm tall <laughs> <laughs> he's enormously charismatic and I think what struck me was his warmth because we've seen, and I've written a bit about this, but we've seen so many different sides of Zelensky, haven't we? We've seen the Zelensky in Butcher who is furious and devastated. We've seen Zelensky the determined who's speaking to the Congress, speaking to NATO, asking for weapons, weapons, weapons. Um, we've seen, you know, we've seen the weight of a war on the face of one man and the, the level of empathy there, which I... I do feel is um, completely genuine. And then we met, yeah, he was all of those things still, but he was also just incredibly warm and engaging and kind of a um, kind of a contrast in this gold-gilded, tapestry-laden, parquet-floored room, you know, in his, in his khaki. But um, just a, yeah, he was... He set us at ease immediately. Did you feel sorry for him? No. I feel sorry for his country and I feel I feel sad uh, for him and his country. But um, pity is not a feeling that President Zelensky evokes and it's not something he would want either. In fact, he was quick to point out that, you know, he wasn't after pity when he talked about his own family because other people in Ukraine, other families in Ukraine are going through... Exactly the same thing to varying degrees. Yeah, there is no pity about this uh, uh, situation, and it is an honor for me to uh, stay as the president of my country in this uh, time of hardship for for Ukraine. And uh, it's 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 a great honor to to be the president of the country at war. What do you hope people get out of the documentary and the interview? I hope. I think watching it myself last night for the first time when it went to when it went to air. Uh, I hope that they see the context of the stories around the interview as well, and that was something that struck me and was really important to me. So showing the New Zealanders who are fighting on the front line there, who are providing humanitarian support there, the New Zealand-based Ukrainians who are trying to get family back here, why it was so important for us to tell those stories and put those things to the man and, and get his reaction to them. So I suppose for me what I hope people get is that kind of holistic picture of why it's so important and and that same feeling that I suppose Simon Morrow and I got when we were there which was it's a gut punch you know and you want to you want to do more and we can be doing more and understand better what's happening there. Tober O'Brien's interview with Volodymyr Zelensky is available on the Today FM website and wherever you get your podcasts and the documentary about her trip Tova meets Zelensky is also available on the Today FM website, the streaming platform Neon, and it will screen again on Prime this weekend. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison, and thanks to Tover O'Brien and Tom Day. Matewa. Te